Recovery Elevator, episode 451. Yeah, it's, it is incremental and that is what's dangerous. It's also, you reach this inflection point where it's suddenly exponential. The curve goes mm. way up and things get really bad really quickly. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Grant. He's 54 years old from Sacramento, California. He took his last drink on August 10th, 2020. Great job, Grant. I want to take a moment to give a shout out to all of our Cafe RE chat hosts. Thank you for your time. You guys do such an amazing job, and the chats are my favorite part about Cafe RE. Listeners, today is going to be a good day. In fact, today has already been a good day. Okay, I feel like I have dropped the ball on something big here. In 451 weeks of podcasting in the sober space, I don't think once, maybe once, I don't know, but I don't think I've mentioned this AF drink. That would be boba tea. My wife and I try to make a point of getting a maple brown sugar boba tea once a week. We even have a punch card. <laughs> the amount of options you have while ordering a boba tea are infinite. You got the type of tea, the flavor, the tapioca balls, the milk type, even whipped cream. I definitely know where I'm going this afternoon. Listeners, the AF beverage world is lit, as the kids would say. And before we get any further, let's hear from a fantastic sponsor, Exact Nature. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery. Recently, I've been taking Exact Nature's Z's pills and sleeping so well. These products are 100% THC-free, and they can be a great tool for your recovery. Learn more at exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. We are five episodes into our podcast Q&A series where Chris and I answer questions from listeners. If you have a question you want us to answer on the air, email it to info at recoveryelevator.com. Okay, this question is from Sarah C. She says, what would you say to a newly sober person or someone who has been sober for a while but is on the verge of relapse or taking a drink? How can you reach out and talk them off the ledge? Is there a pep talk you give? What do you think are the most powerful things you can say to help someone make the decision or choice not to drink? It would be helpful to have a recording of this to listen to whenever those moments happen. Thank you for all you do. Great question, Sarah. Thank you for the submission. All right, listeners, I remixed this question for the title of today's episode into what can you say to someone so they don't drink or basically how to help someone not drink? Great question. And yes, I will be giving some solid true and tried methods that work, strategies that the Recovery Elevator team believe in. But first, I want to recognize the power of an addiction, especially alcohol addiction. There's even a program called Al-Anon and Alateen, which hundreds of thousands, if not millions, attend daily in hopes of finding ways to support a loved one, friend, or family member in their sobriety and alcohol addiction. This is a great question, and this is a tough question to answer because it's a tough ask. It has been shown over and over that addicts, and that's the accurate term here, will choose their drug of choice, alcohol, over friends, family, their job, and more. 
So it's a little more complicated than just a, hey buddy, let's put the bottle down. While doing the Recovery Elevator Project, I've personally received hundreds of messages, email, phone calls on how to help someone, a loved one, a family, or a friend. I wish, I wish, I wish I was armed with more. I do. This is hard, but let's give it a shot. This is somewhat of a David and Goliath situation, but people do quit drinking all the time, every single day. Okay, I think the tone or stance needs to be covered first, which is separate from what is said. Punishing, threatening, or castigating does not work. We've tried this on the macro with incarcerating addiction out of people, which actually creates more addiction, strife, and unrest. Tough love does not work. So a tone or stance of unconditional love needs to be present when confronting a friend who is about to drink. Now a quick note on boundaries. I do not talk with people who are drunk. It's triggering to me and little can be done. But with love, I say, please call me tomorrow morning or when you're sober. Also, don't take it on the chin if the person you're trying to help does end up drinking. After all, that's what an alcoholic does. They drink. The miracle is not drinking. And that miracle happens daily for millions of people. Okay, the absolute best thing you can do to help a person who is about to drink isn't so much what you say, but to be there with your physical presence. Being with them in person is the best. If you can drive to them or be with them, hold their hand, go on a walk with them, then this is ideal. Science shows cravings have a lifespan of 20 minutes or better said, Cravings are finite and eventually will always pass. If you can be with someone for an hour, a couple hours, spend the night, then that is the best way. You can also be the physical barrier. You may have to take their car keys. You might have to say, yo, let's go outside and play a game of horse. It's important to remember that much of drinking is seeking connection. It's connection with a the molecule they are seeking, but overall, they are looking for connection with another human being. You being there with this person is the best way to do this. Now, if you can't be there, there are great alternatives. What's up, telephone, hello, FaceTime, or Zoom. Now, that is a great way to use technology. What to say or do if someone is about to drink. In 2012, I took a friend to an AA meeting who was struggling with alcohol. That was also my first AA meeting. I've since taken a bunch of people to AA meetings. Regardless if the person likes AA or not, that is besides the point. In an AA meeting, there is a collective group consciousness that is calming. You'll feel less alone because you're not alone. You're in a room filled with others who have one goal, sobriety. Maybe this meeting takes place in Cafe RE. You can say, hey, let's jump on the midday chat or late night chat. I will see you there. There is a term in the self-help world which is holding space. Now, what the hell does that mean? You are providing a safe container for this person to feel the feels to sit front and center with a craving and not feel judged or criticized. Some of the best healers I've met are the ones who don't have to say any words at all. They are just there. They allow you to process the craving on your own. Okay, what can you say? Ask them to play the tape forward. Ask them what they think will happen if they take a drink. Are they telling you it's gonna be just one? If so, that's highly unlikely. And it's not like they are straight out lying to you. It's the addiction that's doing the talking. Saying it's only going to be one, then one more after that, then 17 more after that is probably more accurate. And make sure they know it. So have them play the tape forward. Get out a Sharpie and a piece of paper. 
Most likely, they know exactly what will happen if they drink because all they have to do is reference the last 50 times they drank. Ask them how they felt the day after they drank. Ask them how they would like to feel tomorrow morning. Another tool to ask them is, why are you quitting drinking? Why do you want to do this? Having them get clear on the why again is never a bad idea. Maybe the why is to be a better parent, spouse, or to love themselves more. When cravings hit, it's a good idea to get clear on the why again. When someone is about to drink, let them know that alcohol has been ruined. Drinking or returning to the bottle while knowing that alcohol no longer has a place in your life isn't fun. Your soul will start chirping saying, yo, we've already covered this. What's another thing you can say to someone? Tell them they can drink after they go see a movie with you or if they go on a two-mile run or walk. You're going to keep pushing the goalposts. See what we're doing here? Now, this question wasn't geared towards someone in active addiction, but an intervention actually works great. Do you all remember the show Intervention on A&E? After 276 interventions on the show, 270 participants accepted treatment with 151 remaining clean and sober today, which is about a 55% success rate. It's incredible, actually. Even if an intervention doesn't work, it speeds up the whole process of destruction and healing. Sarah, thank you so much for the question. I hope this helps you and our listeners today. Now, we've got a poem lined up after the interview, so stick around. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Grant. One of the things that I was really struggling in early recovery is the thought that I should be doing better. I used to think that I shouldn't be having bad feelings. I shouldn't be having bad thoughts. I was questioning myself all the time, and it really was affecting my self-esteem. I heard somewhere that bad days are part of a good life, and that really stuck. Sometimes I need an external reminder that I am doing okay. Progress is slow and steady, and we can't always be our best selves. So therapy has really helped me to just be gentle, be caring to myself, and keep going. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash elevator. Grant, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Paul. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, for sure, Grant. Great to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to hear more about your story and share it with the listeners. You ready to do it? Certainly am. That's why I'm here. All right. Let's uh, let's not beat around the bush. Grant, when was your last drink? My last drink was a little over three years ago on August 10th, 2020. Heck yeah. And at the time of this recording, you just hit three years, my man. Congratulations. How do you feel? It feels great. You know, I don't market a lot at home, but um, just because it's, it's my thing and not theirs. And that three years ago was not the best time in anybody's lives in my house. But when I, I'm in Cafe RE Up and I got a nice reminder announcement in there. And so it felt great to be acknowledged for it. So it, feel, yeah. it feels really good. Cool. You know, I think the average sobriety time or time away from their last drink in this podcast is right around two months. We've tracked this, but it's phenomenal to have somebody with three plus years. So 
When we get to your story, my request, Grant, leave some time at the end for the, how you did it, right? Year one, year two, year three. But before we get there, Grant, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, maybe what you do for a living, your age, are you married, uh, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, all good stuff. Um, first, let me go back really quickly and say, I get a lot from the two-month people, um, just reminding me about what it was like, and um, I think we all benefit from that. But yeah, so my name is Grant. I actually use my last name on things like this, Grant Boykin. It's a choice for everyone, but I've decided to recover out loud and you know burn the ships in a, in a bigger way. But um, yeah, my name's Grant Boykin. I am 54. I live in Sacramento. Actually, grew up in Wisconsin, uh, but I came out here for graduate school in the early 90s. Met my wife out here and um, lived here ever since. And I have two kids. My son just graduated from college and is looking for work. If anyone knows of any leads for a mechanical, budding mechanical engineer, let me know. Um, although he'd like to stay local in California. And then my daughter is a um, junior at, uh, she goes to college out east. And uh, yeah, we live in Sacramento, which is close to a lot of fun things, close to Tahoe, where we like to hike, close to Napa, which is really beautiful. And it's got other offerings besides the wine. And uh, we live several blocks away from the American River where we like to get out. There's a nice trail. We like to walk and hike and take our kayaks out there. Yeah. Where did you go to grad school? Uh, UC Davis, University of California at Davis for, for sociology. For sure. That that yeah. traditionally is an ag school, right? It is. It grew up that way. It was an offshoot of Berkeley. It was their ag campus. And my father-in-law is actually a, a retired ag econ professor there. And yeah, I guess you asked about career. So I was pursuing a doctorate in sociology and never finished the dissertation, but I fell into research and public policy work for the state of California and did a 20 plus year stint with the state of California in different roles um, before my recovery journey, which kind of launched me into a new career direction, which is all about its you know, public policy still, but related to addiction and recovery. Yeah. I'm a huge Montana State Bobcat fan of football. Yeah, I was a graduate assistant there, which is a, a coaching position for a graduate student. Right. And UC Davis is in the Big Sky Conference. So it's kind of a good rivalry there. I was guessing you must be talking Big Sky, but um, as a graduate yeah. student, I really... I mean, University of Wisconsin was where I went to my undergrad. So Badgers, yeah. Big Ten, yeah. Yep, so. yep, yep. And I like what you said earlier about the two-month person on the podcast. There's a phrase in the rooms of, of the 12 steps where the newcomer is the most important person in the room. Totally agree. Same on the podcast, same in our chats because of the ism, the incredible short memory. It's been a hop, skip, and a jump since my last drink, three plus years for you. But when I get behind the mic and I hear somebody's story who's a week, 10 days, two months away from alcohol, it's like, damn, it's so real. I don't want to go back. So thank you to everybody who has shared their story on the podcast, especially those who maybe don't have a lot of time for their last drink. So I'm glad you said that, Grant. All right, Grant, are you ready to do what we came here to do? Yeah, bring it. Or I guess I'm going to bring it, huh? <laughs> I'm just bringing questions, my man. That's it. You're the one that's speaking through the heart, sharing mm -hmm. your story, which I'm guessing at one point your life was your deepest and darkest secret that nobody knew about. But today is different. Grant Boykin. I love it. Paul Churchill on this end. Let's do it, Grant. You can take us from the start. Um, as I mentioned, let's definitely leave some time for the sobriety component component at the end. But, you know, maybe when you first started drinking, uh, maybe if it was college or your 20s or 30s, when did alcohol no longer serve you? Well, let's go. Let's hear it. 
All right. Did anyone in this group really start in college? I know there are some like that, but my story is pretty typical. Um, yeah. So I was a kid in Wisconsin and my first, you know, my first real experience with alcohol was when I was 12 years old. It was uh, Memorial Day weekend, 1981. And a friend of mine had taken a bottle of Corbell brandy from, it's funny, I still remember the brand. I can't drink brandy to this day, but he had stolen a bottle of brandy from his parents. And we went out into a cornfield. I lived in a, a suburb outside of the city of Madison, surrounded by cornfields. And so we went out there, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know when to stop. So we didn't stop. And long story short, we both ended up in the hospital. And I I said, I was feeling terrible the next day. And I said, I don't know why anyone would do that. And I'm never going to do it again. Grant, did I hear you correctly on your first night drinking, ended up in the hospital? Yes. Gotcha. Okay. I believe my blood alcohol was like 0.4. So five times the legal limit today. Yeah. So went for it, was... it. Something about those corn, those corn fields <laughs> that, yeah. that get people good. Yeah. Keep going. It's funny when you tell your story like this, you kind of, you're on autopilot and yeah, there's a lot of emotion and a lot of darkness, especially remembering back to my parents' reaction and the lack of trust and the fear and and all that. But um for the uh, the sake of time, I'm going to keep powering forward. So that was my first real drinking experience. And um, I quickly got back on the horse after that and really all through junior high and high school. And um, it, it was me and I guess the friends I was with, we were very much focused on where are we going to get the booze for the weekend? Where are we going to find it? And, you know, back then the drinking age was 18. So it was a little less difficult if you had an older sibling or you had a friend with an older sibling, but that was really our focus. How are we going to get the booze and do that for the weekend? So at an early age, I started into this pattern where fun was associated with, or weekends were associated with drinking. And, you know, when it, did I grow up when I went to University of Wisconsin and, and leave it all behind? No, it was a Big Ten school. And really, everybody says their school drank a lot. I think all colleges drank a lot. And so it was like hiding in plain sight. Um, I could feel like I'm not that bad and I don't have a problem because everybody around me was. And I found other substances at the time and think I was probably drinking less than some people. But yeah, in terms of consequences and problems, I didn't have much up to that point, I mean, I had had one drinking underage when I was in the Upper Peninsula of uh, Michigan for a ski trip and, um, you know, some hangovers and things like that. But I kept up the good grades, went to graduate school, um, even probably slowed down a little bit then. I met my wife or my, you know, soon to be wife. We got married in 97 and she wasn't a huge drinker. And, um, you know, I, I still drank. It was really in my 30s when when we had kids, unfortunately, where something clicked in me and um, I realized that, you know, the stress and the tedium of parenthood, um, something about alcohol, it, it kind of took the edge off of both the, the stress of that and the, the boredom of feeling tied to your house. And really unfortunate because that's when I really started when my kids were young um, in my 30s carried on and it was still and my pattern was um if i'd go to the store to get a 12 pack for the week i'd get an extra 12 pack and hide the extra 12 in the garage but soon that became you know too loud in the recycling bin and i found cheap vodka in a plastic bottle was a easier thing to hide go ahead so grant uh, on the mother side of that that's called mommy wine culture right mm -hmm. uh, yep. I, i've heard this plenty of times the podcast of, of being a father yes it's incredible hello son hello daughter um, but it, it's it's a challenge. 
yeah, how old were they when you said this 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 is rough? Yeah, probably about um my daughter was probably a little less than a year and my son was about two years old. So gotcha. A little over. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. So from pretty early on. And those really are the hard times um when when they're that young. And uh, you know, but I in I picture it like um I often describe that the drinking gradually crept into everything. At first, it was evenings and weekends. And yes, I was hiding and drinking alone, but I kept it out of the workday. But at some point in my 40s, you know, I don't blame anything or anyone in particular, any outside factors. But my father passed away from ALS when I was about 45, 46. Um, and I, I kept on, you know, despite the drinking, I kept on rising at work. I had a couple of um, sort of public facing positions that were higher level, and that brought a certain amount of stress that I don't think I ever acknowledged. But eventually it got to the point where, you know, you hit the point when you're drinking, if you're drinking enough, where you don't really drink to get drunk, but you drink to avoid the feelings of what it feels like to withdraw every day. And so that started you know, I'd get up at 5.30 in the morning, put on a pot of coffee, and before it was finished, go out in the garage and and take a few swallows from my vodka and began like that. And I'd put some in a water bottle to take to work. And it was awful. It was very isolating. Yeah. Go ahead. How, how long would you go through that routine? Coffee, pot, drinking in the garage before heading to work? That was probably about the last five years of my drinking. Last five years. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, you said the word crept in, you know, the drinking crept in. I think that's one of the most dangerous components of alcohol is I've heard it phrased like this, as it kills by the inch where other drugs, let's talk meth, crack, cocaine, that stuff. You know, you can't go decades on that. Almost the, the addiction takes hold at such a slow pace. It creeps in so slow. You wake up one day and go, wait a second, drinking coffee and I'm drinking booze in the garage before going to work. And before going any further, there's something I wrote down, forgot to say, Hiding in plain sight. That's an incredible line that you had earlier, right? There are so many of us, especially in so many professions like restaurants and things like that, the service, the hospitality industry, there are so many alcoholics that are hiding in plain sight. And I don't even think they know it because like you said, it's it's contemporaneous with, with that industry. Okay. Take it away. Yeah. Something you just said made me think. Yeah, it's it is incremental and that is what's dangerous. It's also you reach this inflection point where it's suddenly exponential. The curve goes mm. way up and things get really bad really quickly. You also um, said you weren't drinking to feel good anymore. You're drinking to feel normal, right? This is that pretty much. You've already dropped 35 value bombs and we're in nine minutes yeah. into this thing, Grant. Um, well, here here's another one that I see. When once you learn to hide it. Um, like I did, then all bets are off. All the rules about when you can drink or who, how much you should drink, all those get thrown out the window if you're drinking wow. on your own. But yeah, I was during the day. I was drinking just because it was my medicine to feel normal. At night, I was drinking toward oblivion. Um, I just wanted to not feel. So I guess I'm kind of at the part now where, yeah, that was my pattern. I would go in. I actually, I worked out. I like to run, and so I would. Despite my morning drinking, I'd pack the lunches for the kids. Sometimes, I hate to say it, I would drive carpool. And I'd go into work and I'd hit the treadmill. I worked at a place where we had a nice gym and I'd be on the treadmill because I had to get that workout in. And I don't know how I packed it all in back then because um, now I work mostly at home. But through it all and throughout the day, I was drinking a little bit. And on the drive home at night, I always felt like crap. Um, because half the time I knew I had to make a stop by a liquor store or by the grocery store, and that was going to 
throw off the timing of when I got home and I like to rotate the stores. It's a common story. I didn't want anyone, any clerk to catch on to me that I was that guy, you know, the repeat customer for the Jeep vodka. Um, how ridiculous. And so I felt like I was always chained to that, but I didn't know how to get off that, that treadmill. Um, and Grant, I, I, I'm not asking, there's no judgment here. Of course. I, I've heard it all. Well, heard mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. So you were, you're, Coffee in the morning, drinking, going to the work, getting on a treadmill. How, how, are you running a couple miles? Are you just walking. Um, what time are you on the treadmill? Then what time do you start working? How how long did you do this? I mean, that's quite impressive, by the way. You want to call it nothing to be proud of, <laughs> um, but yeah, I at that point I was probably doing three miles at about nine minute miles, so wow. not as fast as I used to be. Sure, still more than more than some. So yeah, and then a full day of work. Yeah, full day of work, and I, you know, I part of me. Th- thinks that I was thinking that the uh, the exercise hum- somehow buoyed me against the the health effects, which it didn't ask my doctor. That's mm-hmm. how I was first discovered. And, and that's really it. When a doctor asked me to do a blood workup and the liver functioning test, the blood test came back to suggest my liver was not working as it should. And um, what age were you at this? Actually, the first time I got that test, I was probably 46 or 47, but I started, it really, it all came to a head when um, I was discovered at work, somebody from HR, um, who I outranked, so it was really awkward, called me in and said somebody had smelled alcohol in my breath, and she said that got her thinking, and she thought of examples where she smelled alcohol in my breath, but it, there was nothing ever she could detect other than that. And that's when I just poured it out and I said, you know, I have been under doctor's care and, and, you know, I just said, I'm an alcoholic. And um, so I started working on it then. That was 2019. And I actually, yeah, let's let's unpack that human resource moment for a bit. You know, you, you, so you were called in. I thought your story was going to say you'd flat out denied it. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Cough syrup, whatever. But you, you came open, you're, you're clean about it. You burn the ships. How did it, how did it feel in 2019 when, you, when that happened? Didn't feel great, actually. I mean, really, my motivation was, this is my out. This is my way to get off, is yeah. to finally admit it. And this is terrible to say, but I didn't admit it to my wife right when that happened. Um, I went a couple months. It was when I was detected a second time just before we were going on a family vacation to Alaska. And... When we were in a in Anchorage before going out and doing our stuff, I actually looked up an outpatient treatment. I wrote to my boss and to my HR person and said, "Look, my insurance covers this place. I want to go there. Give me a chance when I get back." And I decided we're just going to have a vacation. I'm not going to drink. And when I got back, I came out to my wife and to my family and I said, "Here's what I'm dealing with." And then. Um, it was, you know, another year. I, I eventually relapsed, start of the pandemic. Um, bad story. I had a really bad night. Called a subordinate code worker, started an investigation. Long story short, I ended up resigning from that job because of my drinking. And about a month later, I was in a podcast uh, or a Zoom meeting, a Thursday night men's meeting for Cafe RE. And Paul, you won't remember this, but I remember you were there. And uh, it just felt really good because when my life was falling apart, I felt like this was a nice, safe place to be with others who, you know, judgment-free zone where I could talk about my story. No way. Well, thanks for sharing that. When you first yeah. popped on, we came on Zoom together. I recognize you. That, okay. that, could, that could be where. 
Um, and, and listeners, you know, burning the ships, here's the thing. Either you do it voluntarily or you're going to get called in the HR office. You know, metaphorically, it could look different for you. And there's also burning the ships when, you, when you're in control of it. You got a couple of months to bribe or whatnot. So there's a lot of ways to do it. And if you don't burn the ships, uh, the universe will burn them for you. So uh, keep going, Grant. I'm loving this. You're doing fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. And on the burning the ships, some people say, oh, that's really brave to be out and open about it. But here's the thing. I left kind of a public facing role in a in a short amount of time. Like it was sudden. He was there and then he wasn't. You know, that always starts the rumor mill. And I figure what better way to get ahead of the rumors by telling the worst stuff publicly that, you know, worse than somebody's going to come up with or conjure in their gossip. So, um, so it's self-serving in a way. Um, but I like to think that uh, sharing openly helps others too. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of led up to me join, joining Cafe RE somewhere in the up group. If I search for it, I'd see a, a really sad video of me after having lost my job and, um, I think someone in the group pulled it up once on one of my anniversaries and oh wow can't watch it um but uh yeah then I you know obviously things were really tense at home um, my wife was not happy and you know I had one kid in college and one on the way and I just lost my income you know I found my way into a what I call my recovery job it was a limited term position um it was related to in the pandemic, there were a lot of unemployment insurance claims, and they needed to hire an army of workers. So I took a job at a big pay cut and uh, worked there. Was not feeling good about myself, but I loved checking in with the Cafe RE group. I actually left home for a time, lived at a sober living house where everybody was younger than me. It was a great group, but people didn't understand what it was like to lose a job when you had a mortgage and kids in college and uh, everyone's like, oh, you shouldn't be looking for work right now. Just focus on yourself. And I'm like, that doesn't compute. That doesn't work for me. I want to ask about the sober living. So you're, you're at home. Are you trying to stay sober? That's not working. Like, are, are you, are you crossing those lines in the sand, the moderation technique? And you're like, I need to go try sober living. What happened there? I think it was a little both. I think my wife was really worried about me and worried about the liability if I went out and, and drove. Um, I think there was ten. I know there was tension in the home too, and so it was kind of a mutual decision that, you know, I should leave the house for a little while. And sober living made the most sense because if I was just in an apartment by myself, left to my own devices, that would not have been good. At the worst point in my life, <laughs> that would have been a recipe for disaster. I didn't even know sober living existed, but I found it, and and it was a it was a great spot. It was really where I needed to be, and it's where I learned to take suggestions and where I kind of started on the journey to understand, oh yeah, my life is not going to look exactly how it was. I'm not going to be able to fix everything right away or claw back to the income level or the job that I had. Um, I'm going to have to do things differently and I'm going to have to be okay with that. And it was a long adjustment period before I got there, but I eventually did and and things are, are working out better over time. Grant, I'm going to go back just a bit here to the medical results from your doctor. I know there are a lot of listeners, A, that have had external feedback from a medical professional, something of that sorts, and also some that are almost wishing, hey, I wish there would be an external piece of news that would curtail this drinking for me. Now, I've done this podcast enough to hear people that doctors have said, if you drink again, you will die. I'm not sure if that's the message you got, but the writing's on the wall with your liver failure. You get one mm -hmm. liver. You, you got... You get two kidneys, whatnot, you get one, well, you got one liver um, and you're toast after that. 
so like, what was that news for you? Just say, oh, thank you. Like, uh, this, this is what I needed to hear. I'm going to quit. But I understand you drank again after that. Just walk yeah. us through that that doctor's visit. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was quite the awakening when I first had a result that the way my doctor explained it is your liver is not functioning optimally at the time of the test. So that didn't mean permanent damage. They'd have to do more. So I did actually, after that first time, get an ultrasound that found out nothing really conclusive. You're older, so there's a little fatty tissue, a little scarring. But the doctor was very clear that, um, you know, if you keep this up, you're, you know, keeping on making your liver work harder than it needs to, it's going to do irreversible damage. But the good mm. news, and this is what you know, I don't want people not to have hope because the liver is an amazing organ and it can reheal itself if you let it. What two thirds um, of your liver can reheal itself around there? Am I correct? Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I've read before. Uh, yeah. Yeah, about thirty percent can be functioning and then it can heal the rest. I mean, incredible, but okay. let's not get there. And I was talking to my wife the other night about alcoholism, and she doesn't get it. Right? Thank goodness, uh, a normie who just doesn't drink. I hit the jackpot there. And there's a couple people, Grant, on this podcast that I've interviewed, and I know one of them has passed away because they were on a waiting list for a liver transplant, right? That's mm -hmm. a that's a tough spot to be. You don't exactly go to the top of that list if if you're an alcoholic, right? Yeah, um, bit of stigma around there. And, and yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, keep going, Grant. Mid-2020. Yeah, living in sober living and uh, doing my, what I now look back as my recovery job. Um, and then- you know, it's it started to click. I started to think things could be different. And um, I found this organization, Shatterproof, uh, that I now work with that works in nationwide. It's a not nationwide nonprofit and it works to reduce the stigma of addiction, to to increase the quality of treatment, working with others and make make treatment more accessible to people. And we also work on state and federal legislation to improve the quality of treatment. Um, and so I started volunteering for them. I found another podcast. I mean, I was active with the Recovery Elevator and Cafe RE groups, but I found another podcast, Recovery in the Middle Ages, and they always read recent news about addiction and recovery. So I started doing news clips for them, um, started a website, and I started to think, okay, well, I'm just making stuff up, but it's fulfilling because I have this new interest in all things related to addiction and recovery, and maybe it'll come to something at some point. Um, eventually, I got another job uh, that was a more of a managerial job, um, but then the organization that I volunteered for, Shatterproof, was coming into California, and I thought, you know, I gave myself permission, and I talked to my wife, and I sort of changed career. I changed direction. And I went to, uh, went to work for Shatterproof and I've been there for about a year and a half now and really liking it. Grant, before we hit record, you, you mentioned there's a resource uh, URL and stuff and Robin, please listen and put this in the show notes it's about helping people navigate or find treatment. What is that? Yeah. Thanks for asking. It's, it's a, a website and it's called Treatment Atlas. The URL is www.treatmentatlas.org atlas like a map and it's a website that includes treatment providers from 14 states right now i'm not going to list them it covers about 45 percent of the population of the us you can go on the website and see where it is but it is a way for people to find treatment by location by whatever insurance you have you can take a little assessment that we created with the american society of addiction medicine if you don't know what you're looking for when i was looking for treatment i wasn't going to go into a residential 
treatment setting because I had work and responsibilities, but I didn't know outpatient was an option. So it's got that. Um, it's got a way that you can leave a review. So if any of you have been through treatment, be of service to somebody else and find your treatment facility on Atlas and leave a review. Um, if anybody has questions about it, you can find me on Cafe Ari or gboykin at gmail.com and happy to talk to you about it. But thanks for letting me share that, Paul. Yeah, Grant, how long has that resource been up? Since 2020, when That's we 2020. started as a pilot in six states, and we keep growing, and we're going to have 14 by the end of the year after we add Indiana and Connecticut, and um, we are in in talks to add more in the future. Gotcha. You know, this component of the recovery world is, is a challenge. There was there's a uh, HBO guy, John Oliver. He did an incredible mm -hmm. segment on the rehab industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in 2018 or 2017, or maybe in 2019, and he talks about how much of the treatment industry is an open door. It's a revolving door built on people relapsing and even finding finding a treatment center is, is, is there's a whole bunch of the money exchanging hands. It's just sketchy and the regulations are low. And he talked about, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but somebody in the administrative cabinet for the president of that time, I think it was uh, yeah, I think Obama um, and his son. So this is somebody in charge of addiction, in charge of overseeing addiction treatment or the legislation. His son, uh, struggle with addiction and they couldn't navigate the system and, and his son died. Right. So when I hear your story, the dot org at the end of it, you know, hopefully, hopefully we're on, we're, we, it sounds like you're trying to fix the issue. So again, that note, that, that link is in the show notes. Thank you, Grant. Um, okay. One more thing on that yeah, really quick. Of course you go forever, but um, yeah, it really is. The treatment is a industry that has grown up outside of the normal healthcare system, which means it's also grown up outside of a lot of the regulations. And that's what Shatterproof and our partners in state and county government and health insurers are trying to correct is how do we how do we um, bring quality and bring evidence-based practices back into treatment? So. so part of that split from traditional medicine and recovery medicine uh, first off, prior to 1935, addiction or or alcoholism was a fatal disease. There was a check mark on a box on a clipboard, so like fatalism, alcohol. As soon as AA came along, was around was around the similar time when they found a cure to tuberculosis. So they had these massive wards that were no longer occupied by tuberculosis patients. Here comes Bill W. Doctor Bob solving an issue that doctors could not solve, and it was almost like, okay, you guys got it. And that's where the fracture between Western medicine. Um, and alcoholism happened and that they're basically have been split since. So it sounds that that's great that we're, I think there's going to be a marrying of the two. Uh, also people in recovery who are not in recovery, normal drinkers working with problematic drinkers, because I think addiction, alcoholism is the canary in the mine. Just one of these that are saying to the whole of society, hello, we're a little off balance. So, yeah. And I think there's a certain urgency with the fentanyl crisis, um, you know, just, the amount of overdoses and the, the it's alcohol is scary and it's always going to be the number one. Um, but the, what's happening right now with fentanyl and now xylazine and the drug supply, um, it's this immediate crisis that I think is giving, making a lot of people pay attention to addiction treatment in general. What is xylazine? It's the first time I've heard of that. It's, it's a, it, if you Google it, you'll find countless stories, but really over the last six to eight months or so, but it's a, Veteran, it's got veterinarian veterinary uses as a tranquilizer, but people are putting it into opioids and other drugs to stretch out the effect. 
um, but it's not responsive. It's not an opioid, so it's not responsive mm. to Narcan. So it, you can't revive somebody with Narcan, and it it um, constricts your blood vessels, so your wounds don't heal. And if you're mm. homeless and on the street, you get wounds. And so there are people with horrendous wounds, even amputations or death from you know all related to xylazine. So. So xylazine is a drug that is meant to enhance or make the effects of the drug go longer. That's my understanding. Okay. I'm not okay. an expert and I'm not a dealer, so I don't know Listeners, why I, it gets in there. I, 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 in my position with this, I need to be very careful about the news I disseminate and what I cover on the podcast yeah. to make sure it's, sure it's accurate. And of course, I've, I've shared stuff that's not true, right? I apologize, yeah. but that just happens. But I've come across a couple of resources from people I trust where most, do you, under, do you know where most of the fentanyl comes from in the U.S.? You know, I know there's there's a lot of hyperbole over it. You know, the Chinese sources and Mexican. Um, so I'm not going to speculate because that's not my expertise. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting at here, right? I don't want to live in this world if this is true, right? I don't want to believe it, but I keep hearing that, and this might be wrong, right? But most of the fentanyl gets introduced to Mexico, which then comes to the border. But Chinese, the, the Chinese are giving it to Mexico, knowing it's going to come to America and destabilize us. I don't know, right? But we do live in a world that is effed up at times. This is one of the reasons why Ari is not on TikTok anymore. I don't want to. I don't mm -hmm. want to support that. Also, in Montana, it's on. It's on the bill for TikTok to be illegal in Montana next I year. I have right? read that, and I think that will be passed. So Ari, we're not. We're not supporting that. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I like. I, I also sometimes struggle with what to cover. Like how effed up shit. How much effed up shit yeah. is out there? I, I think it's good to be know about, but also we need to take our brain. And start focusing on the love, connection, inclusivity, music, vibration, the stars, connection with people, group dances and all that stuff. And they can do all the other shit they want, but we're going to focus on love and and how you recovered, Grant. Walk us through, walk us through year one. Like how oh, was that without alcohol? Yeah. Just really quick back to that point, and then I'll, I'll stop about it, but about the the origin or the source of fentanyl. I kind of think about that as trying to figure out the origin or the cause of what happened to me and my alcoholism doesn't matter now. I, I don't care. I'm, not, I'm done looking for the cause. I just want the solution and Great I just want to be in peace and happiness. So how did I get there? You know, I, um, one of the things after I moved out of sober living, I decided to get a home breathalyzer device and you can buy it. There's a couple of options, but I, I had one and it, it sends me a message three times a day because I set it up that way to, to blow into it and take a test sends the results to my wife. And so that was like this guardrail that I had. And I think for me, it was really important to have because I think, you know, anytime that I had craving, well, I also had this motivation not to disappoint my family again. So that was extremely helpful. Yeah. So I was working my first job and then I got a better job, a managerial job. But one of the turning points, and I'm not just trying to plug Cafe RE, but there was a Northern California meetup, a hike at, at um, Lassen National Forest. Um, Carrie was up there. Carrie, if you don't know her, she's the glue that holds the whole Cafe R community. Hey, Mac, together. without a doubt. I wasn't sure if we did the, the Mac last name on here, but yes, K-Mac. Um, so she was on the hike, Neil from Cafe RE up, some others. And there I was driving to meet a bunch of strangers. I had met them online, but you know nobody I had met in person. And we hiked and it was snowy. And I just felt like these are my people and we had fun. And that was when I realized that recovery is not about giving stuff up. It's about what you can gain. And so that was a real turning point. And then, um, you know, I kept my my job as a government manager for another year. And then I went on to work for the organization I work for now. And I'm just kind of tickled every day that 
I get to, you know, I'll go to a conference and talk about our stuff, but I also get to um, sit in on sessions where I learn from doctors, from clinicians, from experts on all sorts of topics related to addiction and recovery. And I'm just like, that's my interest anyway. It's my hobbies. <laughs> now it's become that way. And um, I get to do it for work. And yeah, I, what else do I do? I, um, you know, I'm very holistic about it. I go to meetings. I go to AA meetings, um, not so much as I used to, but one or two a week. And one of my outpatients programs has a uh, an alumni program. And I go to that when I can a couple times a month, because that's a really good group. With my workplace, because we're focused on addiction, we have, there's a good number. It's definitely less than a third, but there's a number of us who are in recovery. We have a private Slack channel where we talk and support each other. That's pretty rare, I think, to have that at work. And there's definitely risk in most workplaces of letting people know because there's still a lot of stigma out there. Um, but yeah, just living a, a normal life and, um, and you know, just keep the time filled. That's really important for me. And um, in addition to everything else I'm doing, I, I have a website, like I mentioned, that I, I put together news clips and I do updates on relevant California legislation. So that's a lot of busy work that I don't get any money for, but it um, it actually helps with work. What is, what is that website? Well, thanks for letting me plug in another thing. It, it's called soberliningsplaybook.com. It is a .com, but it's just my Squarespace website and I don't add, have advertisements. So I do some short essays where I rea react to things that are in the news. But the main thing is every Wednesday, there's what's called the Wednesday Weekly. And it's an aggregate of clips from the news that I've found that are relevant. Um, you know, And then um, I have another tab that looks at legislation in California, everything related to drug policy or changes in the treatment landscape that people in the field might be interested in. Grant, when I'm president, I'm going to make, I'm not, I wouldn't make, I wouldn't make alcohol illegal. They already tried that. It's called the prohibition. <laughs> crime went way up, uh, organized crime, murders, all that stuff. But I think with the, the packaging and stuff, like uh, there would be a lot of changes, just, just white bottle with black lettering, no, no beautiful fonts, no, no yeah. crazy advert, advert advertisements in the world where I'm from, all that stuff. Uh, I think that's going to change. And, and you see that with pot now, or what I call pot, kids today call weed. You know, it, it's like it used to be you just went to your guy and you got whatever that guy had. And now there's just crazy choice and fancy packaging. And at least in California, and I'm, I'm sure Montana doesn't have a recreational weed yet. Oh, we, we, we do. We oh, do. You do. Okay. Yep. Yep. And I read an article on January 2nd, 3rd or 4th, like right after it happened, you know, what everybody thought was going to happen didn't happen. Yeah. And actually crime went down on New Year's Eve yeah. and the first couple of days in January. You know, and like the model is there. It's Portugal. In fact, I might even be more liberal and say we got to legalize everything. Adios, drug cartels, right? But you um, need the infrastructure, healthcare, housing, all the stuff to go along with it. For to sure. Support people. Yeah. For so, sure. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, um, I'm with you. Yeah, it, it's really interesting, and I think I think we're going there. And also, it yeah. showed that a democracy works. People got together and voted with Colorado. I think it's 2014 or something like that, and yeah. we can make change with our votes. Um, but I'm happy to be on this side of it with you, Grant. Yeah, I am too. Um, one uh, one question before we get to the rapid fire round. In this last three years, have you had like a F it, I'm drinking moment and how'd you get through it? No, I never have had a F it, I'm drinking moment. But every once in a while, I will have a, hmm, I'll have a feeling that creeps into me and I think, 
would things feel better with a drink? I just, you know, I no longer use that breathalyzer device. That was my guardrail before. But now I just, I kind of sit and listen to it. Like they say, I know this will pass and it always does. Um, Yeah, it's hard to explain why, yes, that happens. And now I don't get mad at myself or worried about it when it happens, I think. You know, in the old days, I wouldn't have given it thought, but here I am giving it thought and getting through it. How proud about, you know, I can be really proud of that. So. Hell yeah. Yeah. yeah we had a guest speaker, Ryan Leaf, uh, NFL number one draft pick several years ago, speak at our yep. event. And he he had a triggering thought like a couple of weeks ago, right? And after 10 years, 10 plus years of sobriety, um, nothing about that is weakness or kind of what you said, just the awareness to say hello to it. Uh, I think I connected that thought to what you said. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. You know, I think you said boredom. It's been a while since my last drink. And I've had some moments in life, not so much where I wanted to drink. I'm very blessed with that. But it's like, man, I'm really bored right now in this thing we call life. I'm not sure what the point of it is. Um, but boredom is actually quite healthy. In the Western world, capitalism, we're, we're told to think that if we're bored, we're doing something wrong. And you're just a couple clicks away from happiness <laughs> and Amazon Prime shipping or whatnot. But in reality, there's a great book called The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. And he talks about how boredom is so healthy. In fact, boredom is the spark before creativity. We're like, oh, this sucks. I'm going to invent a new game. I'm going to go paint something. I'm going to go play a musical instrument, things like that. Grant, you've done great. I've loved the interview thus far. Are you ready? I got one more question. How has okay. your relationship changed be- between your wife and your kids since in sobriety? It got worse before it got better, if you want Thanks. the short answer. Thank you for but, your honesty. Um, yeah, I will say um, it has really opened things up. Um, and for that, I can be happy. My kids now, you know, I'd like to think that if they have problems, they're going to be more open. I already know that. I'm not going to go into their stories. Um, and and yeah, we just talk more openly. It's it's really opened the door to communication. Yep. And right. my wife and I are looking forward to kind of post-pandemic. We've done a few vacations, but just the two of us, we talked about it for years, but years ago, we did a, a self-guided biking tour in Austria. We're doing a walking tour in England coming up in September. We're really looking forward to that. So Yeah. That's some bucket list items right there yeah. for sure. All right. Rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 10 to 30 seconds, are you ready? Okay. All right, number one, coming in hot. What's the one thing you've learned about yourself in sobriety, Grant? Well, I was going to say this before, but I can, without drinking, I don't necessarily have to be bored. I don't need drinking to get rid of boredom. Gotcha. Number two, best sober moment. You know, I keep going back to that. I know I've already said this, but that that hike that I took with the Cafe RE group, because it was such a turning point. Yeah, your favorite alcohol-free drink. Tap water. I'm a guy who used to drink cheap vodka in the garage. I don't need to replace what I used to drink with something fancy. I like water. (laughs) What's the temperature of that tap water? Cold, chilled, room temp? Cold. I'm not one of those hot water people. (laughs) Uh, What's the point of life, Grant? Well, I have to go to uh, the musical group Trooper for this, but we're here for a good time, not a long time. Make the most of it. Yeah. What's your favorite 80s band? I would have to go with, you know, it, it's hard. It's like choosing what's your favorite kid, but um, a Midwestern kid, a little Minneapolis band called The Replacements is one of my favorite rock and roll bands. All right. What are some of your favorite resources? 
Cafe RE for sure is one that has been hugely important to me. Um, I'm in another, a number of other recovery Facebook groups that are also related to podcasts. Dopey is one and recovery in the middle ages. Um, you know, I do 12 step meetings some, but, um, and then just my, my new workplace shatterproof, um, has been a huge resource to me. Uh, just my other, uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. And then exercise is a big resource as well. Ooh. All right. What has sobriety made possible for you? I guess it got me to know myself more and it put me in a position where I realized I didn't have the control to change everything and put it all back. And maybe I'd have to adjust to a different future. And then actually, as oddly as it sounds, it gave me the freedom to consider a new future and consider new ways of, you know, a, a new career path. Yeah. And Grant, if legislation, fencing, sharp teeth or claws weren't a thing, what pet would you get? That's not on your list. <laughs> I think um, I've got a 14-year-old cat, so I got to say that, you know, maybe he'll be around for a while, but if, if he ever leaves us, I would replace it with another cat. Percy's great. Love it. All right. Last question. What piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? Do it. Um, but you're not going to be able to do it on your own. So listen to help, reach out for help, find it if you need it, and um, and listen to what others who've been through it have to say. Grant, you might need to ditch the booze if. Let's hear it. Well, if you are beginning your morning drinking vodka in the garage before the coffee is brewed, you may need to ditch the booze, especially if you're following it up with a treadmill session. That's us go. Well, Grant, if, if you're on the treadmill, you're earning it, buddy. <laughs> so uh, I thought. So I thought. Until knock, knock. This is the HR department uh, calling for Grant Boykin. Grant, great job. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm on the same journey you are, my man. And every time I hit end on the Zoom chat, it fills my heart. Uh, it helps me out too. So thank you, Grant, for being part of my sobriety journey. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. And thank you, all the listeners, for indulging me. I really appreciate it. All right. Great job, Grant. Take care. All right. Thank you. Listeners, we are going to close out from a poem from a listener named Peter. It's titled, Even in the Rain We Know These Things. Scribbled lines made the waves when the artists were on lunch. And that mattered because it was in practicing pretending because it was the big ways the little things could grow. Still, from eraser shavings emerged more to erase. Marooned in rich color, it was costly too. Though paid in full, but the meters were semi-hollow. With the process of filling up again still unknown, the die-cast scale model citizens wrote letters to future days like being starstruck on nights with heavy clouds. And we spoke empty until the lint was the only thing left in our pockets. Still, we proceeded to darken the doorsteps with methods of madness, knowing the tree in spring and the tree in the fall were born on the same day. And they grow and we spin. Even in the rain, we know these things. For being awake is more than a line. It's a loop visited each day to be spread further again. But we are the wings, and there is the sky. Even in the rain, we know these things. Thank you so much, Peter, for listening, and thank you for the wonderful poem. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys.